0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending September 23. It's a short week because we have a holiday tomorrow for the grand final. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, uh, you might notice that Daniel is away for one of the interviews. He had a day off, rarely has one. Uh, We do have a conversation about why. He had to have some time off. It might have involved a trip to hospital. We also talked to Mark Fennell about
1: his new ABC series, The School, that tried to end racism. We chat about the earthquake that hit Melbourne and some other earthquakes that we've experienced around the world. Michael Harden talks about how underrated iceberg lettuce is and I chat about friends and family not recognising celebrities in hotels and on aeroplanes.
2: Chris K.P. gave us the weird science of lucid dreaming and we spoke to Matt Hages, author of Footy Banners, a complete run-through. RRR.
1: You know, I had a conversation with my dad yesterday. We were chatting on the phone because we're having a, a picnic today. And uh, and he asked about you, Daniel. He oh, missed you. That's nice. Yeah, oh. no, it was very sweet. He's like, how's Daniel doing? I was like, oh, he's all right. He's like, and he's coming back tomorrow? I said, yeah, yeah, he'll be
2: back on the ES. Dad's like, oh, that's good to hear. That's what I was thinking about your dad as well. Uh, but did um, Ron Barassi ask your mum out?
1: Oh yeah, so he was he was stirring. so he was a regular customer, and uh, and he knew Dad, and uh, he, he was just stirring Mum up, and did ask her if she wanted to go on a date, and Mum's gone, what about my husband? And then he goes, he can come too. No, okay,
2: good.
0: God, what a <laughs> treat. It was very cute. Oh my yeah, God, my from dad dog's had... eyes and dead horse to
2: date. <laughs> <laughs> date. Yeah, oh, no, really. Yeah, no. So um, it was all happening. Yeah, no. It was it was a fun little sojourn I was in a, a a gurney I was on a gurney is that oh, what they're called yeah this yeah makes It sound it actually it was pretty intense so that's fair enough <laughs> yeah uh well so anyway the my I think my family was like why isn't Daniel answering or why isn't he anyway I heard a bang at the door and it was my sister. And uh, because I, my phone was off. Because I was, anyway, my heart was hurting. Daniel,
0: just for context, had had chest pains for a couple of days. And we'd said to him, I think it'd be a really good idea if you went to the GP. Mm. Yes. And then you turned your phone off. <laughs> and so your family
2: turned up at your door. Like a dying dog yes. or whatever. <laughs> but I did go, I went to a GP and they, they were closed because it was a tier two site. Oh, no. Then I went oh. to my other GP and they said, we're snowed under, can't see till Thursday. So I said, well, I'll just go home and die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So
3: oh,
2: what like,
1: do you do oh, in that situation? Go <laughs> to
2: an emergency department. Uh, that's course. what you yeah. do. Yes, no, Always. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah I felt sorry sense. for the paramedics because my case wasn't, I don't think my case was bad, but they got to just sit with you. Oh, really? They, oh, the, yeah. the, one of the paramedics is a listener as well. Oh. oh. So they turned up to your place and yeah. went, oh, hi, this is... <laughs> Dead. So and then also they've got to wear PPE gear in the hospital, and it's really hot in the PPE gear. Oh, would be so I felt really bad. That'd be shit in summer. Oh yeah, oh my exactly, God. exactly. Um, and they gave me fentanyl. Woo! Get out! You had the fentanyl. Yeah, through the nose.
0: Is that really? So that's not the whistle that they suck on that the uh, the footballers suck on, is it? You know the green whistle when they have a really bad in- injury. Is oh, that the maybe. same?
2: I can't bl- I imagine know. that would be allowed, would it? Well you know It's a miracle. You know when you hey. see
0: them snap their legs in half, they put those oh, whistles yeah. in their That's mouth the... and they suck on them? I thought yeah. that was Yeah, if they're not coming back out to play, I'd imagine that
2: gives them fentanyl. Oh, yeah. Is that
0: what it is, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, so how did you get it? up the nose?
2: Yeah, a couple of sprays. They just sprayed up your nose. Yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, so you're just sitting on a gurney, just contemplating everything. Like, what else are you supposed to do? Staring <laughs> at the ceiling, wondering why it's fallen into such disrepair. <laughs> then you think about your own life, why that's in disrepair. Uh, oh, wow. But it was fine. And then they, because they, I've also been in hospital, because they were like, well, I went to hospital recently, and they're like, look, you know, they were prodding my, uh, what would you call them? Testicles. Yeah. Right. And
0: they. <laughs> why did you make me say that? You <laughs> didn't want to say it. What, what would you moment. call them?
2: <laughs> and um they're like, Oh, we'll check we're gonna do a test for tumours. I was like, Oh, cool. So anyway, I think maybe the waiting for the results come back was stressing me out. You think oh, so?
0: Fair enough. Daniel is bloody hell, it's been a full on week. <laughs> it has.
2: Uh so anyway, got those results back at like one AM on a for, what night was it? We did, maybe Thursday. We night. Night. got it
0: back Thursday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And um, they said it's not a tumor, but they'll ha- they'll still have to uh, uh, operate uh, because one's too high. I'm like, are you? Te- is this your polite way of saying my balls haven't dropped? <laughs> <laughs> Why is a testicle too high? And what does it matter? So they're good going morning, to... Melbourne. So they're gonna drop it for me. Really? Yeah. And finally my voice will stop uh, cracking. What if what if your voice changes? Well, isn't that interesting? I've been thinking about veneers. You
0: have such a you have don't such a veneers. You have such a distinct voice. Do I? Yeah.
2: You do. Yeah. Right. What if it changes? Well, I don't maybe know. Maybe it'll I... be really good. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to spoon bad.
4: Independently yours.
2: Triple R.
1: 102.7.
3: You're on Triple R Breakfasters and joining us now is Mark Fennell, Walkley award-winning journalist, film critic, podcast creator and author to talk about a new three-part series which is premiering tomorrow night. That's Tuesday, 21st of September at 8.30pm on ABC TV and ABC iView. The series is called The School That Tried to End Racism. Welcome to Breakfasters, Mark.
5: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
3: Hello, welcome. Um, Tell us about the genesis of this show and why you wanted to be part of it.
5: Well, it's an interesting one. So the program that we kind of document that that is a program that's been running in the US for many many years, and actually they did a version of this in in the UK. But it's interesting when they um, when they first asked if I was interested in in being part of this program in Australia, because the first time it's ever ever been done in Australia, I sat down and I watched what they did in the UK. And it's interesting, the cultural makeup of the UK versus Australia, because their school that they had was like, you know, kids of an African background, kids of a white background, two Asians in the middle. Whereas the story of race in Australia, uh, as we all know, is very complicated. Of course, you've got our First Nations history, then you've got, you know, the movement of white Australians, and then there's wave upon wave of migration. And so the story of race in Australia is actually just like altogether more complicated and so um in in terms of how it plays out in this school and so we had really big question marks as to what race both you know racism and subtle and blatant looks like in a modern sort of Australian suburban um, primary school and it turns out it's really really more nuanced than we give it credit for and I think that was a really fascinating thing to, to watch unfold with the kids.
1: You know it, it's interesting uh, watching this so I have a, a mixed race background a Pacific Island mother and a straight white Australian father and watching this and seeing how the kids identify I, I went to a primary school where it was completely multicultural and I didn't know that I was different and then I went to a school where there was 95% white kids and all of a sudden I, you know, I, I was different and I experienced racism that I, I hadn't before. It's just so interesting to see each of the kids um, you know depending on, on where they're growing up and what primary school they're going to, um, how they actually feel within the community.
5: Yeah, I mean I'm, I'm a bit like you, I'm a mixture of a bunch of different things and I think one of the interesting things that happens for Mixed kids and and increasingly, obviously, you know, people of our generation are that but, you know, they've come from different cultural backgrounds. There's a real kind of question of identity. And and one of the reasons why this program happens in a school, at uh, kind of a tail end of primary school is simple, because we know that firstly, you know, 11 to 12 year olds in many cases have already experienced, you know, subtle and blatant racism. I certainly did. But more importantly is this. The patterns of thought and behavior that kind of form racism, they have a tendency to bed in around early high school. And so it's important to kind of give the kids a toolkit for how to talk about race, how to talk about what makes us different, how to talk about what makes us the same. And the knock-on effects for that aren't just about race. I mean, navigating how to talk about the things that make us different. I mean, you can kind of already see how the the knock-on effects for that could kind of touch on homophobia, could touch on um, sexism. You know, there's a whole bunch of range of areas in which it can work through. So I think it was really important to kind of give the kids, and and, and this I will confess I didn't realise this was going to be the impact of it when we started, but watching the kids kind of work out how to talk about the things that make them different, like oh, like there's a bit at the beginning of the of the sort of the film where I'm sort of breaking down in tears, which they shot on the last day, uh, and I I always promised myself I'd never break down in tears in front of a camera, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I realised when I was you know when it was the last day of filming and I realised what like I was in tears looking at these kids and I couldn't quite process why. It was only much, much afterwards as we were doing sort of the editing and the voiceover that I realised why, which is that because the kids can now talk about what makes them different. If I had had that, if I'd had that in, you know, primary school and high school, I just think about all of the trauma <laughs> that I yeah. could have avoided yeah. and kids around me could have avoided. I mean, look, let's be honest, like school's kind of traumatic one way or the other, but the lesser it would have, it would have had less trauma, which I think is a good goal, right?
1: Yeah, you know, Aziza um, is a phenomenal young girl. the The way that she could speak and articulate experiences of racism that she had uh, with her family, and then and just the strength to get up and speak about it and be proud and say that it's wrong. I mean, I'm 39 and I don't think I could speak as well as her. Some amazing kids in this documentary, in this series. I know.
5: Uh... I know we, have a, we had a running joke on the production team, on the adult side of the team, that one day we're, Aziz is going to be Prime Minister and yep. we're all going to end up working for him. <laughs> I, I don't, don't want to get too Whitney Houston on it, but I do believe, after <laughs> having done the children, other than, like, it was a really, you know, the, the emotional intelligence that these 11, 12 year olds had. Blew me away, and it's also important to note that like these aren't just the academically gifted kids. It's actually a very good cross section of kids from, from different, of, certainly from different cultural backgrounds, but also from different kind of slightly economic backgrounds. And you really take in the complexity of kids that go to a suburban primary school, right? And what's fascinating is that even within that kind of diverse kind of cross section of kids, their ability to navigate talking about their feelings. And their sense of identity is really, um, is really remarkable and in, in, in ways that, like, a, as you say, like many adults I know are actually quite capable of articulating. When you approach a school to
0: film a series like this, is there trepidation? Did you kind of uh, have to talk to parents and, and talk to teachers about how, how you felt this was going to play out? Because I'd imagine you'd be very, and they'd be very protective of all the children involved as well. Oh, and rightly so. Yeah. So the,
5: the origin of this is really fascinating. So the Department of Education in the state where it was filmed, uh, they were very much a partner. So they were, they were involved and certainly there's no chance – like you absolutely cannot make a series like this without the very, very enthusiastic consent of the, the parents, the teachers, the, the, the school management. So there's a huge – like there's a huge number of, I guess, stakeholders that are involved in, in doing this and that's, you know, that's primarily because you're dealing with kids' welfare And, you know, we take that really seriously. Um, I'm a parent of two kids uh, in primary school, and I think, you know, like navigating something like this is really complicated, particularly when you do have to kind of show some degree of vulnerability. And, you know, my cards are on the table and in front of camera as much as the the kids are in many ways. And I think it's just really important that I think, you know, when people kind of tune in to watch it tomorrow night, it's important that people understand, like, there's a whole team of people around Ah, uh, the kids that have been involved in that process to make it safe for them. But I'll also say this is that you know it, a lot of the the, the documentary kind of captures some really uncomfortable conversations, right? And it's what I learned is that you can't have a conversation on racism without engaging in uncomfortable conversations. Mm. But the trick to uncomfortable conversations is to do it in an environment where you feel safe, you feel secure, like you feel heard. And that was really the 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 structure that was put around the kids. And it occurred to me doing it's like oh that applies to all of us you know we can have conversations around race and and a range of issues but we can only do it if we have an environment where people feel safe and secure and and that's only and and in that kind of environment only there can we move forward and i was like "Mm." maybe this is how we should do all uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> can I? Can we talk about how
3: this series is edited, Mark? Because it's a three-part series and I imagine there would have been a lot of footage that would have ended up on the cutting room floor. And I also imagine that um, the producers would have been very wary of how this story is told and the power that the producers have to tell the story of what unfolded. Could you speak to that a bit?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The 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 team behind it, I hadn't worked with before, but the the woman who was the executive producer, I've known since I was a teenager. Uh, we haven't actually worked since I was uh, together since I was a teenager. And I think the just the level of care with the kids and 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 how they're seen as well is the important thing. You know, like this is going to be a thing that exists for a long mm. time. You know, when they're adults, it will exist as well. And I think they're very mindful of, I guess, the legacy impact of them. And I think we've seen that play out in the past with other films. So I think everyone's quite keenly aware that as a document of their lives at a certain point, that it's something that they can look back on and be proud of as opposed to something that they, they cringe about. So there's that consideration as well. I think, um, you know, like it's also worth pointing out that the kids are one part of that equation. The teachers, myself, the parents are also part of the film as well. So, you know, I, th- I think it's important to understand that like as much as the kids are the kind of the, at the heart of the film, it's something that's not necessarily designed for kids to watch. I mean, really, one of the hopes is that families and and you know people well outside these demographics watch it as well because it kind of models it kind of models the way we can have a slightly more constructive conversation around race. You know, I you know I say a lot that racism is a bit like a grenade, like a hand grenade. People tend to adults tend to fall into three categories where you're either a person who's never experienced it and doesn't think it's that big a deal, which is fair enough, or you've got people who, you know, have never experienced it and do know it's a big deal and don't know how to talk about it because you're worried you're going to put your foot in your mouth, you can say the wrong thing. And then there's people like me who's, you know, definitely been on the receiving end of it and is often terrified of talking about it because you're worried you're going to uh, be told, oh, you, you're being overly sensitive. And so for adults, it's a very loaded issue, which you see play out with me and the teachers and the parents. But there's a clarity that the kids bring to it that nobody else can, right, because they they come slightly unencumbered. And I think mm-hmm. watching that unfold, I'm hoping, has a sort of a material impact on the adults watching at home. And, you, like, when you make something like this, you are starting a conversation that you don't get to finish. Like the nation sort of has to finish this conversation. Mm. And I think that's part of why you make stuff like this.
3: The School That Tried to End Racism is a new three-part series which premieres on Tuesday, 21st of September at 8.30pm on ABC TV and ABC iview. We have been speaking to Mark Fennell, who is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, film critic and podcast creator, and the person who's at the centre of, or one of the people at the centre, I should say, (laughs) because the kids are very much at the centre of this (laughs) brand-new series. Thank you, Mark Fennell, for joining
5: us on Breakfasters. It was lovely. Thank you so much. Have an awesome day.
1: R. So I caught a bus home um, and a tram yesterday. I had to go on the old PT um, and I only realised after being on the phone and then looking on um, on my socials that we had an earthquake. I didn't – because I was on a bus, I just – Were you alone on the bus? No, there are, um, there might have been two other people on the bus but I, I don't know. I just assumed, if I did feel anything, that it was just the road. The bus, yeah. 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 Were you moving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, I I couldn't believe it when everyone was saying it. Uh, My family sent through, like we've got a a group chat and my dad sent through something straight away and then my sister um, replied and then my brother replied. I was just like, when... What? I, I, I didn't get any of this. Mm. Did the bus driver kind of
0: do anything or say anything at any point?
1: I was, I, I don't know. You know, when I am on public transport, a lot of the time I just zone out. Totally. So I was, yeah, I, I was on a phone call. And then when I got off the phone call, I was just on my socials. And I, to be honest, I don't know what was happening around me. <laughs> 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 anything. Everyone could have panicked and freaked out and screamed, but I had no idea. Um, but how about you guys? Where were you when when the earthquake happened yesterday?
2: Were you... We were here. We were. Uh, right. Still, Still working hard. Stu- yeah, idea. that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, I was I was standing pretty much just where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarah was just on the other side of the door.
1: Was it big in here? Did you?
0: Well, do you know what's weird? Andrew, D- Andrew, sorry, Daniel, right. You're the only other man I spend that much time <laughs> yeah. with. Um, Daniel and I were talking and I was just crapping on about something.
2: You weren't crapping on.
0: I was having some emotional <laughs> something or other. And then... Daniel was kind of standing and stood forward and stood back, and then SoSavina and Lisa came running out of both the studio. Sophina wasn't there, and Lisa was recording an interview um, from Primal Scream and they came running out and they said, "Can you? Did you feel that? Everything was shaking, and everyone was freaking out." And I went, "No, oh, what oh. are you talking about?" And I hadn't felt a thing standing there. And then I go to Daniel, "Did you feel something?" And he goes, "He goes, yeah." I started trembling. I think he just thought that he was going to have a stroke, a actually. stroke, and pass out. Like he doesn't
2: I, say anything I was like, to I'll, me. I was like, I'll check when the conversation's over if I'm still alive.
0: That's how much I was crapping on. Daniel just really? leans off the wall, thinks he's having a stroke, and doesn't <laughs> doesn't say anything whatsoever. So he's felt the whole studio shake. I I must have been standing in the one spot in all of Victoria that the. That's how solid was So is. sound, yeah. Yeah, that I, I didn't feel one thing at really? all. Really? Yeah. Because my
2: eyes were going blurry, like I couldn't see. Like it felt like vertigo. Oh, I was, wow. And the, the wall was shaking. And I was like, oh, and, and I could see it wobble behind me. And I'm oh like, my oh, God. gee, really, it's, I'm really having an episode here. Yeah. And
1: because Smithy wasn't reacting, so you're thinking, okay, this is no, just me. No, that's right.
2: And right. then um, then Lisa <laughs> came out and said, was that an earthquake? Oh. And I was like, "Yep." Yeah. <laughs> Like,
1: Thank God. Thank yeah. God. oh, wow. Have you guys experienced an earthquake before,
0: whether it be here or elsewhere? Um, in Japan, I yeah. did, yeah. And I, was, I think I mentioned them there before, but it was our first night in Japan as well. And right. you know, when you go to a country that has a lot of earthquakes, mm. people joke about it mm. quite a lot. But our first night, and I, I was 10 stories up in an Airbnb. Oh, wow. And had gone into that really deep, weird, just got off a flight sleep and woke up to the bed shaking really dramatically and screamed at Andrew because I thought Andrew was shaking the bed. Like my (laughs) brain couldn't put together what was happening. Mm. So I go to him, what are you doing? (laughs) Because I thought he was just rocking the bed for fun and then he runs out of the bathroom and we just stared at each other in kind of horror for, and it felt like 10 years that we just were there. And because the buildings in Japan are built to sway. And it was quite a big earthquake. Right. I'd never and I'd never felt that. I'd never been ten stories up in a in a building that swayed. And so yeah, we just scary. absolutely freaked out. But then afterwards there was total silence. No one did anything. And we just went, well I think if no one else around us is doing it, this is supposed to be like your yeah. standard old, Getting like your it. bog
1: standard earthquake. yeah, yeah that's what happens. um i've I've experienced heaps uh, from from travel and from living in the Pacific. It happened all the time when I was living in Samoa, but more recently, I was in um Bali, and I was in a market in Ubud and it sounded like at the time, a massive truck had just come past. And so everything was rattling on people's uh, market stalls. And I've looked at Abby, I was like, oh, we we're actually doing a food tour. And we've all just gone, I, I looked at it, I go, was that a truck? And then all of the Balinese women that were at the stalls just started screaming. <laughs> and then uh, the lady that was taking the tour, she's like, no, that was an earthquake. Uh, and then just the aftermath, it, it actually wasn't too bad. And went for about 10 seconds. But it is just a shock. It's like, oh, what's happening here? Um, but the biggest one i will I, as I mentioned, when I was in Samoa, we would have them would have short earthquakes a few times a week. Like sometimes we'd go through phases. A few times a week. Yeah, and that just be just a short, might be five seconds, um, and then we had some bigger ones. But the biggest one that we had was in two thousand and nine, and where I was living in Apia, I was about fifty meters from the beach, and we we're flattened, and then you kind of have mountains, um, and this came at just before 7am I had a couple of housemates and this uh it was was it 8.1 magnitude this one and it was like the whole world was caving in on you everything fell off um in my bedroom and just everything fell off I had glass smashing everywhere I've jumped up my housemates have jumped up and we've all ran and met in the hallway and straight away I just said "I go get in the car because the thing that you're told when we're in Samoa if if there's ever um An earthquake, there's risk of a tsunami, so you have to go up the hill. So yeah, we jumped in my uh, ute that I had and in our pyjamas and within a couple of minutes we were up the mountain. We had this spot that we would meet other Aussie volunteers and friends and stuff at at this house. But the thing that got me, a couple of minutes later, later, unfortunately, there was a massive tsunami on the other side of the island. So this is, yeah, September 29, 2019. Uh, but the thing that got us, because nothing like this had happened before, the whole island were warned and there were all these courses in schools and workplaces and on the news, but because it hasn't happened, no one treated it seriously. As we were driving up the mountain, there were school buses driving down with kids, all kids are walking just around the bit, like the um, the main part of Arbia, which was right near the beach. Just like nothing was happening, and kind of laughing because it was such a huge earthquake. Um, but yeah, it didn't hit that side of the island; it, it hit the other side of the island. But we, yeah, it, it was it was unbelievable. That Just would be that the feeling. Would,
0: that's like how do you take? I don't know. How did you know? Did you just know that it was going to be huge because it felt that much more significant than everything else? Because if you experience yeah. them all the time, I can see how you just be like, whatever. Oh,
1: completely. I think, you know, a, a month beforehand, we had a big one at 3am in the morning and I... Didn't get up. My housemates mm-hmm. so are like, "Can we go?" And I had the car, and I go, "You can take my." Car. I was just so tired. I was just like, "Oh, we'll be fine." And they're like, "Can we? Can we please leave?" And I remember the next day, all my friends and I had a friend that was working there from England, and her role was specifically working in emergency situations and what to do. And she just had this conversation with me. She's like, "If that ever happens." Please get in your car and go out. Like Gee. she's like the it's that was so risky. Like because you were tired or or what? Yeah. Um. So then after that I was like, oh okay, and I really scared my housemates. They're like, can we just leave? So I kind of had that conversation a, a month before. But this one, like this was just so much bigger than anything. It, it honestly, it was the most terrifying thing ever. Just like your whole world crashing down. Mm. So we just were like, we have to go up the mountain. That's Do, the only thing. Do they that we tell knew. you
2: how long if there is a tsunami you have?
1: Um, within a few minutes. So it was only a few minutes. Really? Yeah, a few minutes. You
0: know, mind, tsunamis are something that happen, you know, kind of down the track or even right. like you've got a little bit of yeah. time. I was just reading. It's so interesting because the New York Times re-shared this article on the weekend from 2015 and it was written in the aftermath of the huge Japanese yeah. um, earthquake that resulted in the, the meltdown um, in Fukushima. And... They. It was about how there's this fault line in America, and they're expecting it to have. They're expecting a similar size earthquake to eventually hit this fault line in America. Um, but this particular story was about how there was a meeting of seismologists at the time in Japan when that when that hit, and they mm. know. So okay, so 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 they all kind of like laughed. They were in this room. They were studying <sighs> what the biggest earthquake that could possibly hit the area would be. They start laughing, they're like, oh, here we go. And they look at their watches, right? And they said that there's a moment that once something hits one minute, you know, how big the earthquake's going to be at two minutes, you know, that it's eight, you know, it's an eight. And, but they never believed there could be a three-minute earthquake because a three-minute earthquake meant nine or whatever it yeah, might be. I don't want to get the number insane. wrong, but whatever it is, whatever yeah. that earthquake was that caused that extraordinary damage. And they all left the building at one minute and then went, whoa, what's happening? And then looked at their watches and went, oh, my God, we've hit three minutes. This has never happened. Oh, no. wow. Yeah. And it was just really interesting reading how seismologists responded, knowing yeah. just from the time that the length of an earthquake is um, – is how you know how big it's how yeah. big it is, which I didn't know until I'd read this, yeah. and so
1: yeah, and I think that's the thing as well because they would always last no more. Well, thirty seconds is very long, and this one went for about a minute. So as we were still ah. driving up the mountain, it was still going. So it was yeah, crazy. Yeah.
2: Well, if you've registered an eight, no wonder you didn't bloody notice this one. I oh,
1: know, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, totally. <laughs>
2: so down on so your five. Triple
4: R. I want something to eat Something with a crunch and
2: very sweet Food interluder Michael Harden's here to do the impossible. Morning, Michael. <laughs>
4: Good morning. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Uh, it, I don't think it's impossible and um, quite frankly, right at the top, I think you're a snore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are we doing? Uh, we're talking. We're talking about uh, talking about iceberg lettuce and uh, how I think that it is um, un- very unfairly maligned and uh, <laughs> that it's actually one of the kings of lettuces in reality. So um, it's kings, uh, you know,
0: Michael, Harden, <laughs> kings of lettuces.
4: Yeah, I have yeah.
0: to agree on that. Oh,
4: I am a huge
1: iceberg lettuce fan.
4: Yes. See, it's sort of like you know, it's it's been really unfairly maligned, you know, particularly in the last <laughs> probably. Two or three decades, because it's sort of like it's been associated with the sort of industrialization of food, and the fact that it's kind of really easy to move around, and that you see it on, you know, burgers in fast food chains and all of that sort of stuff. And you know, people are kind of say that it has no taste, and so it's sort of become <laughs> this sort of signifier of taste and class and values. Like, there's like there's some great, you know, like I have to say, there are some really good insults around it. There was like you know. There are was reading one john water has called it the polyester of greens <laughs> <laughs> Which I think says everything about it because it's sort of like it is because you sort of then you talk about then you hear someone like Alice Waters who's like the um, you know queen of organic restaurants in you know she started like this whole organic well was one of the main people starting the organic movement in America and she sort of talks about it you know that she was she'd be like you know happy to send people a box of heirloom lettuces to uh, in order to shame them out of their plebeian tastes. <laughs> oh jeez. And, you know, because it's like it's so terrible because it doesn't have really have a season or a sense of place. So, <laughs> um, you know, I so that sort of snobbery really gets right up my yeah, nose. Yeah, I love I that stuff. That <laughs> but, you know, the thing about iceberg lettuce is it's like it, it is incredibly versatile. It also is like incredibly robust as well. So I love the fact that, you know, one of the ways to, you know, to, to prepare the lettuce is to, a whole lettuce is to, you know, grab it and with the core down, you just smack it on the bench. And that knocks the core of the thing. And then you just twist it and pull it out. And it's sort of like, you know, for a vegan, it's like gutting an animal on the belt. You know, it's kind of that you really sort of, you know, you're kind of getting in there and uh, sort of wrestling with your food to get. so um it's uh i think that it's good in that way what a you tough kind of, guy like, you know it works really well you can tear it into shreds you can you know t- chop it into bits and pieces and sort of you can cook it you can pickle it you know it's great it's a really it's a really great have lettuce. you thought of a boxing bag <laughs> <laughs> yes that could work too so um, <laughs> Are you mean so, you, you can cook it i didn't know you could cook yeah, Let it's, us full it's stop. So good. Like I hadn't. Like it's. It's actually really a long-standing traditional Cantonese um, d- dish with, like, ah. like, like ingredient in Cantonese cooking, and um, sort of a very traditional um, Chinese New Year dish for um, the Cantonese in Cantonese cooking. Is it a, with it stir-fried with it stir fried with just with shallots and garlic, and maybe sort of a little bit of Shaoxing wine um, and tosses around. And the good thing about it is that sort of like you get. Like Because Cantonese cooking, it's really interesting that it's part of um, Chinese cooking because it is a lot of iceberg is that the flavor is subtle, but it's very much about texture. And, you know, in Cantonese cooking, texture is as important as flavor in many cases. And so something like iceberg lettuce is fantastic because it stands up to the onslaught the heat really well so you'll get the edges of it will be soft and wilted and silky but you'll still be able to get a little crunch in there as well mm. and um like I, I was i've been over lockdown i've been doing a fair bit of cooking out of um, one of kylie Kwong's cookbooks and, there, and she does this version of mapo tofu that her mum used to make and so mapo tofu for anybody that that hasn't eaten it is a um cantonese clat. well i don't think it's cantonese it might be Sichuan because it's got Sichuan pepper in it but it's quite fiery it's got um minced pork and tofu and sort of chili oil and that sort of stuff and normally it's just served like that with other stuff but what she does is it's is you make the pork mix first pork and tofu mixed and then you shred Um, iceberg lettuce and have fresh tomatoes and spring onions and you put that over the top and you mix it through so you've got this really refreshing crunch in with the sort of the richness of of the sauce Mm. so it's um it's actually a really really delicious recipe
0: Someone's texted in and asked, um, "Do you have any knowledge about why it gives, why they might be getting reflux from it uh, hours after they've eaten it when it's raw? Is there something in its makeup that it is makes you prone to reflux? It's not an experience I've had with it.
4: No. It's, so that seems really interesting because it's like ninety six percent water. Oh, so, you know, and it doesn't have like it's like you know you it, This is the one thing that you know you could probably win on if you wanted to have an argument, and you're totally basing it on nutrition iceberg would probably lose because you know there's not a lot there you know if you want to get sort of the, the you know the, the nutritional values you're going for your deeper um green leaves and that sort of stuff but mm. yeah i have no idea would maybe you stop breathing while you're chewing <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Uh, good advice.
0: Yeah.
4: But yeah, so it's um yeah, it's like I just I just think that it's uh yeah, it is a really fantastic lettuce, and it's kind of got a um you know the, the, it has the bad reputation, but it's like you know things like um there's a really good there's a couple of really good recipes that uh, I've used like just as a salad. I love it, like particularly in summer because the thing is that you can refrigerate it. And then you can like you know just shred it up really finely and just dress it with something like you know just with a really simple kind of oil vinegar dressing. And then um, but it'll also take things like um, you know you can finely grate um, pecorino romano over the top of it and toss that through. Um, you know it, it's really good in wedges. You can kind of chop it up into wedges is the way the I like like the way the Americans do it. Um, you know, they'll ch- chop it into a wedge and then put it like a creamy sauce over the top, like you know, a dressing over the top, like a blue cheese dressing or, you know, something along those lines, like a buttermilk and vinegar dress. those sort of things where it's sort of like it holds up really well. You can eat it in your hands. It's also really good for things like sa- sanchoe bao, which is the, you know, with the little lettuce cups that you put in, um, you know, a, m- a mixture of mints, whether it's vegetables or meat. In those sort of things, so it just—it's just—it's a very handy, yeah. very robust, and very delicious.
2: Because we were uh, saying lettuce. earlier that iceberg lettuce, so it comes to mind. I suppose it's a mere receptacle. Um, yeah, and and also Caesar salad, so the salad for people who hate salad.
4: Yeah, yeah, but iceberg's not really used for Caesar. Okay, that's colds. So that's the sort of the longer Mm. remain lettuce. So you know, and I think that sort of saying that it's the, you know, that that it doesn't really have any flavorance for the, you know, the the people that don't like leaves or something is sort of being a little bit eurocentric, Daniel. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because it is. We have to go back to the idea that like texture in food is as important as as flavor that's right and, you know kind of like and i think that that's sort of something that that is sort of increasing like and you know what it's like you know in any kind of like eating any kind of food you just kind of it's real i always love the addition of crunch in mm. anything that i'm eating whether it's from a you know a, an iceberg leaf or whether it's from a bread crumb or you know mm. sort of some from pickles and stuff like that which is another thing that iceberg you can do with iceberg lettuce you can actually pickle it um you know which is really really beautiful what does that it, do it stands up to it. It's sort of like it is like you can do it. Like it's like it's it's the same sort of thing as you can do with a with a cucumber, which has similar nutritional value, but doesn't seem to have the um, you know the vitriol sprayed <laughs> out at the poor old thing. <laughs> Um, (laughs) you know and but you know and you can also do things like the the you can you can barbecue you can like slice the slice the iceberg lettuce up into into like circles and then um toss it in a bit of oil Mm -hmm. and then um and then just chop it on chuck it on the barbecue and it brings out sort of some of the sugars in it and um it's just this kind of like smoky crunchy deliciousness that you can have with with you know to accompany other things on the on the table
2: Wow! From such a low base, you've elevated iceberg lettuce to such heights, yes. and yeah. in the process, cancelled me. And yeah. I really appreciate <laughs> exactly. that. I can't believe this is, exactly this this is what like, got you. Know, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
5: uh, I,
4: just, I just um um texture shamed you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I feel like you've you've um helped me shed the shame that I've had for years. Being someone uh, that used to walk into into a, a supermarket or into a grocery store and go straight for the iceberg lettuce, and then when that weird scattered mixed lettuce stuff came in and everyone was taking that to barbecues, I, I would get shamed because I'd turn up with a ball of lettuce and now I feel like I'm owning it again. So thank you.
4: Absolutely, yeah, no worries. It's sort of like, you know, I, I'm all for the, I'm here for the iceberg. Yeah. And yeah. It's, I've loved it ever since. Like I can remember like you talking about that shame thing. When I was a little kid, one of the things I loved the most was, you know, in hot weather was like a wedge of um, iceberg lettuce just with salt. And it's oh. like the sort of because it's so watery, and then you get that extra extra sort of salt kick in it. It's beautiful for eating in hot weather, just as a little snack.
2: Oh, oh.
0: Nice. I'm going to sell that at music festivals.
2: What a marker, Michael Harden, Pleasure as always. Yeah, great to talk. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
1: I was chatting to um, my mate of honour, actually one of my best mates, um, Jonesy, uh, last week. It was, uh, and we were laughing just about a story that uh, that happened to her a long time ago uh, when she was playing cricket for Australia, um, and she was in India for the World Cup, uh, and all the countries were staying in this one hotel, and she, um, and so everyone was kind of it was just very social, and yeah, it was a nice vibe. Everyone chatting to the people from the other teams and whatnot. Anyway, then she she was getting a coffee, and there was another um, woman there who she assumed was another cricketer, and she smiled. So then she just started chatting to her, talking about the pitches that they're playing on in India, how the ball turns a lot more and whatnot. And and this other woman was kind of smiling and nodding her head, and you know, continuing the conversation, but didn't add too much to it. Uh, anyway, Jonesy Jonesy left. She's like, anyway, good luck with your with your matches. I'll, I'll catch you later. And then left. And then she went to meet the rest of the Aussie girls at the at the pool. And they were all talking. I was like, oh my God, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Yeah, I can't believe she's staying at the hotel. And Jonesy's like, oh, what are you talking about? They're like, have you heard who's staying at the hotel? And Jonesy's like, no, who? Alanis Morissette was staying at her hotel, and Jonesy thought she was playing in the Canadian women's quick team. Oh <laughs> in my this World God. Cup are you and you was serious? just having this conversation. She just. When she speaks about it, she's like, it was just a, a familiar face. She smiled at her. So then she was just... And she was like, it was just a fun vibe. Everyone was talking to everyone. And she was so embarrassed. She's like, oh, my God. She was oh talking my God. to Alanis Morissette about the pitch conditions <laughs> in India. <laughs> and Alanis Morissette was lovely and just smiled and, and you know, went with the conversation. She wasn't rude or anything, didn't brush her off. But um, Yeah, how embarrassing, right? <laughs>
2: Oh, what a wasted opportunity! Oh,
0: I actually cannot believe that, and I just—I really wish I could have been a fire on the wall to hear mm. how how she responded to yeah. conversation, like a very specific conversation about a sport that I probably imagine
1: she didn't have a huge insight into. Yeah. Maybe being Canadian—I mean, you think that she would have? <laughs> Do you reckon you get that a lot though with celebrities that? Like, people recognise them, but sometimes they don't know where they recognise them from. Like, they just look familiar. So they think they're friends. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, she might get that occasionally, so she was just smiling and and kind of letting it go. Um, Years ago, my mum was flying to Rockhampton uh, for a family friend's um, birthday party, and she was on the flight from Brisbane to Rockhampton, and she sat next to, unknowingly, Alfie Langer. Alan Langer played for the Brisbane Legend of uh, Rugby League. Rugby League, just I hope I got that right. Um, Captain Queensland, like he's just a superstar in Queensland and yeah. mum had no idea. Um, but she sat next to him and they were in a small plane so there's no first class economy, it's just all one. And uh, and people were kind of acting all weird around her. Everyone was kind of excited and she didn't know what was happening. And then the um, uh, one of the flight attendants come up and asked... Alfie Langer if he wanted a drink and he's just he said what drink he wanted and then she ignored mum. Mum's like, excuse me, um, are you gonna ask me if I want a drink? She's like, Oh, I'm sorry, it's just a short flight, we're not doing food or drink service. And she's like, But you you just offered him a drink. Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> and then he goes, What would you like? She goes, Well, I wouldn't mind a champagne. <laughs> he goes, Can you get her a champagne, please? <laughs> so my mum's sitting next to Alfie Langer, she's having a champagne, and then uh, she's like, She's like, Oh, so what do you do? He's like, oh, I don't do much. She's like, nothing? He's like, oh, just an ordinary bloke, blah, blah, blah. He's like, what do you do? She's like, well, I'm going to a family friend's birthday. I'm a Pacific dancer. Like, I do island dancing, so I'm performing at the thing. And she was just talking, talking. She had two champagnes on the flight, which was just over an hour. Oh, my God. And then when she got off in Rockhampton, the family, like our cousins that were picking her up, mad Brisbane Broncos fans, right? Huge. She gets off the flight um, and he introduced himself as Alan and she introduced herself. Anyway... They get off and there's cameras everywhere and stuff. She's like, "Oh, must be a celebrity, right? Uh, No, no idea." Uh, And then she goes and she sees her family and they're all like screaming and she's like, "I'm here, I'm here." They, she thought they were so excited to see her, Uh, which they were. But she was also standing next to Alfie Bloody Langer. Um, And then he's left. He's like, "See you later." She's like, "Bye, Alan. Hi." And they're like, "Oh my
2: god."
1: You were next to Alfie Langer. she's like, "No, Alan. Oh, he's just an ordinary bloke, and like had no idea." How is
2: it possible that your mum's on first name basis with Alfie Langer <laughs> and Ron, Ron Barassi. Barassi? I
1: know, I did that. I was like, "What is your with your mum at <laughs> footy <laughs> legend?" Like It's funny, and I think the best thing is that she's just unaware all the time of who these people are, which is which is great.
0: But what a great way to move through the world! Oh, yeah. totally. Like, it's yeah. so much the the better conversations that you have with humans in your life if you're not kind of worried
2: about. <laughs> Whether they're a superstar, yeah. oh, completely. Also, what shameless preferential treatment about getting a drink on a flight? Because oh, yes! you're a VIP. VIP.
1: Yeah. I mean, she said that he actually looked a little bit uncomfortable. Um, oh, um, Bing. Oh. Especially when mum asked, and he was just like, oh, yeah, no, of course, yeah, get her whatever she wants kind of a thing but yeah i mean you do make it, it was a, kind it was a small for pointing out that it's like not not even knowing that it was a
0: famous
2: person and yeah. just being like
0: no way is that person having a champagne and i'm not
2: <laughs> mm. it's so interesting because i f- i feel like i'm the absolute opposite of your mother because i was watching maybe we were watching multiply that f- the documentary made about the dance at pran square 500 people everyone's wearing masks you can't identify anybody. There's heaps. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's Katie Allen, member for Higgins.
3: <laughs> you did too. And so I'm
2: like squinting and I'm like, <laughs> then I took the credits, like, it was. It was Katie Allen, member for Higgins. And then I was like, 400 meters away from, I was like, that looks, he looks like he's got the posture and he looks, he, is that Todd Woodbridge? And it was. <laughs> it was in it the Todd city. Woodbridge? Todd, Todd Woodbridge in the city pretty recently trying to decipher a parking sign. <laughs> Did you approach? No, I never approach. It's just, it's just, I, cause yeah, I just go, I just chuck them on the list. I'm like another classic obscure celebrity spot. Whereas your mum is like actually hanging out with yeah, celebrities. Yeah, actually
0: hanging out. I was like, I reckon thirty-five seconds away from saying hello to who I thought was Dustin Martin, and the only reason oh. I would never approach a, I'm an, I'm, I'm not a, not a, uh, never approach a celebrity ever, yeah. ever. Like I wouldn't, I'm not a go up and get a photo yeah. with anyone. But was that the pools after? It was only like eight weeks after giving birth to June and a friend was like, oh, hold June, you have a few laps. I didn't have my glasses on. I was a bit, (laughs) and there was a guy sunbaking and I was like, Dustin Martin is at this obscure public pool (laughs) because he doesn't want to be seen. I could see the haircut. He was with a hot chick. And I was like, this makes sense. I cannot believe he's here. And I was going to tell all my footy girlfriends, and I thought, you know what would be awesome? Who cares? Just get a, just ask him for a photo. You never do this, Sarah. Yeah. Like, your tiger girls will love this. And I walked up to him, like, in a towel, like, <laughs> eight weeks p- postpartum. I was mad, honestly. And walk up to this guy, get up as close oh, as he no. could possibly get to someone where he looks up at me and I look down at him and then I went... Number one, I regret this decision because oh, God. I was like, I regret it. I do not want to say hello to Dustin Martin. And then I went, number two, that is not Dustin Martin. And I just went, g'day. And then just turned yes. around and walked
2: off in another direction. Oh. So
0: that just talk. Never approach famous people. Yeah.
2: Well, I was walking past, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I walked past Richo, but then... Uh, by the time, because he's so tall. Yeah, mm. that's the thing with what he plays. It's often the height, right? Your eyes have, it's like a, it's a bore and a stress to like confirm it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so he walked past, and then I was like, oh, he probably, he might think, I'm a, because I'm pretty sure in retrospect he went to, because he's been on the show lots. Yeah, of mm. course. And I'm pretty sure he went to acknowledge, but by the time I walked past. You snubbed Richard!
0: You I snubbed Richard! I mean, it was an am <laughs> I'm sorry, Richard! Or <laughs>
2: Melbourne's
6: own. Triple
4: R science tubes and buttons. The dreamy
2: Chris KP joins us to administer a dose of weird science. Morning, Chris.
7: Well, hello. That's very flattering and not not in a small way weird. (laughs) But great to be here.
2: Yes, it is. Great to have you. What what are we talking about today?
7: Well, I stumbled upon a a recent piece of research uh, about lucid dreaming, which I... uh, it, it took lucid dreaming, which is already great, to a, a whole new level. But I'll get to that in a second. Let me let me give you the the back story of lucid dreaming because I suspect that there are many listeners uh, who would have experienced this. Just statistically speaking, that'd be the case. Um, but there may be, in fact, some whose dreams were currently influencing. But uh, <laughs> apologies if that's the case. But let's let's get let's get into the, the basics of this. So, as you would know. Most of the time when we're dreaming, we don't know that we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we realize afterwards we've had this dream and it's terribly exciting and you'll tell your friends about it and they won't care and <laughs> they're in it. That's just the way it works. Um, but, you know, in the moment though, in the actual dream, um, you know, completely nuts things, like impossible things, Go completely unchallenged things that are, you know, defy the laws of physics and anything else we just go with it in the dream because that's the way it is and then you wake up and you go hang on that's not how gravity works or i would never talk to that person voluntarily mm. so you know that that just happens in, and it's okay however sometimes people actually have that awareness that they're in a dream and that is lucid dreaming the really i guess advanced version of that is when you can start controlling stuff in the dream and when you think about all those impossible things that happen in dreams, how amazing is it if you can control that stuff? Uh, and it's, it's doable, but it's not quite that simple. So basically what happens in lucid dreaming is it normally occurs around the interface between being awake and being asleep. Because when you sleep, you go through cycles. Um, you have what is called rapid eye movement or REM sleep, and that's where most of the dreams that you remember happen. So you drift through that, and then you go into lighter sleep and then deeper sleep, But that's cycles. Uh, which means that it goes you up and down through those cycles several times. They take about 90 minutes each, so several times throughout a night's sleep, you'll you'll have that cycle experience, um, and it, that means that everybody dreams, even if you think you don't, even if you never remember a dream. They're happening inside your brain anyway, um, and that's most of the ones that we remember happen during during REM sleep. Um, so when you're uh, when you're experiencing lucid dreaming, it's normally in that interface when you're just conscious enough to know what's going on but unconscious enough to not be tied to the real world, if you like. And it's a delicate place to be. It can be quite a fragile experience. A quick check. Has anybody anybody in the breakfast crew lucid dreamt before?
0: Yeah, I'm a lucid dreamer, a, a regular lucid problem? dreamer. Um, a common lucid dream of mine is my, I can control my ability to fly in dreams. So sometimes yeah. I can be in a difficult situation and I do this thing where I, I go, Sarah, remember if you jump up and down, enough you can fly and I jump up and down and I make myself fly but it's all almost always the lucidness is almost always related to this ability to fly
7: that is so cool yeah it is yeah Yeah, it is do you do you do you remember when you had this experience first
0: uh when i was young i've always had very vivid dreams because i used to wake up and be that annoying kid there would be like mom oh, you know and then tell everyone my dreams like they were really exciting but <laughs> i i think i began to realize as probably kind of around 12 13 that i could um control this ability to fly in
7: dreams wow so that's that's that that stands up well against the um the data so basically most people about more than half of people have had a lucid dream experience at some point, but it tends to get less frequent as you get older. So it's Mm -hmm. more common in kids. And if you think about kids telling about their dreams, um, the, the, the boundaries are already blurred between what they're imagining, what's in their dream, what they think is real, what we think is real. So it's often not picked. It's like they said a thing, and you just think that's a kid being a kid, or they've had a, a weird idea. But it may in fact be that they're controlling something in their head, which is you know completely utterly nuts, but very real to them. Um, so, but it is possible to if you had that experience early, and as you've just described, you know if it's a good thing then you tend to keep it. You tend to learn the tricks of the trade. You get a few personal habits mm. that you can build into your, into your dreaming life. Um, if you have never had a lucid dream or if you maybe had an experience ages ago but haven't done it before, there are a number of things you can do to try and get it happening again, if you like, and build those habits. One of them uh, is to keep a sleep journal, a uh, you know, dream journal, where basically whenever you wake up, whether it's first thing in the morning or at the 2 a.m. in the morning, pull out a bit of paper and scroll down what you dreamt. Um, it actually you actually record things pretty well by doing that, and it gets you in the habit of thinking about what's going on in your dream rather than it being passive. You get a little bit more active in that. Um, the other step that uh, a lot of the, a lot of the research suggests you undertake is to do what they call mnemonically induced lucid dreaming, or MILD, mild. And what that means is that you basically, when you wake up. Uh, And it's especially good when you're going back to sleep again. That's when it's most beneficial. When you've woken up, you're going back to sleep again to basically give yourself um, a bit of what's called prospective memory work. Tell yourself what you're going to do. And it's like repeating to yourself, I will have a lucid dream tonight. I will have a lucid dream tonight. I will control my dreams tonight. I will control my dreams tonight. Or even something as simple as next time I'm dreaming, I want to remember what I'm dreaming. So you you sort of set your brain up for what's going to happen. And if you think about the content of dreams, Often the content of dreams, especially if it's a bit um, confronting or disturbing in some way, is something you're actually worried about. It's on your mind. So you start dreaming about that terrifying job interview tomorrow morning or that first date you don't want to go on or whatever it is you've got to deal with. um, And that becomes your dream. So by giving yourself this perspective memory trigger, you are making it a lot more likely that you'll you'll feed a bit of that consciousness into your subconscious a bit. When you're in the dream, um, to help you know that you are, it's worth having a reality check. the, the one that i use when i remember to do it is um, i basically look at colors so I'll, I'll look around wherever i am in the room and see one thing with a color and then look away from it and look back and see if it's still the same color and it's not in front frequently the case that it won't be it will just or it's disappeared completely or it's got a pattern or heaven knows um, or something happens to it so maybe it's was always a red thing and it's still a red thing and nothing has changed but now someone's doing something with it so what it tells me in that little weird moment in my mind is oh yeah I've influenced what's the you know the narrative. I've changed what's going on in here in a way that would never be reasonable in the real world. Um, and when God, you're you fact
2: checking your own subconscious, how <laughs> <press paper. laughs> scientific?
7: Well, it's, it's it's kind of it's kind of a bit like that. And the thing is, I, I've also it's it's funny you have this. You you turn to the things you trust. So so yeah, in life generally. Mm. So in a dream, i they there going okay. I I. I will test the the validity of this thing in my dream before I accept that it's real, even though it's my dream, which is crazy. Um, But I also don't trust that I can't screw it up. So I always tend to start really small. So when I realize I'm in there, (laughs) it's that moment of, okay, so can I predict what's going to happen next? I'm going to do anything. I'm just going to sit back, but can I predict the next thing? And usually what will happen is the predictions start to become so easy and so correct that you, you, know, you cross the line into, okay, now I am actually controlling this. This is not you know a giraffe is going to walk through the door carrying a Gucci bag because I predicted it. It's because mm-hmm. I want a giraffe to walk through the door <laughs> carrying design a designer piece and luggage, and in it comes. Um, but the problem is, and again, this is probably not the case for people who are good at doing this. I'm not especially good at it. Um, it it's so easy to break it. You, you get In my mind, it's almost like you get a proportion too much consciousness, and then you ruined it, and you wake up um but it's, if you can get there uh and and not get too greedy about the influence then so be it's a great thing to do and i would well, we recommend it to people because the flying thing is very common uh, as it's choice uh I, I it's my favorite thing and i don't i can't do it quite as readily as um, i don't think Sarah can but i i love the idea of being able to um jump up and down that's how i do it too i basically really? run off something yeah run off a roof or run off a hill run off a roof. um ah. and just yeah don't fall <laughs> That's all. Yeah,
0: I bounce. I kind of bounce up and down on the... Like Mario or something. Like I bounce and bounce and then I, yeah. the bouncing becomes flying.
7: It's such a good thing. Have, have you ever caught yourself trying to do it in the real world?
0: I don't want to answer that question
7: because it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, <fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not judging you. It's I think, really, no, I think um, about it
0: a lot in the real world. Like as in, I want, you know, the movement. Oh, I'm yes. like, what is it in that movement <laughs> that I'm doing right in the dreams? <laughs>
7: Oh, that, that makes total sense. If you've had a positive experience flying in your dreams by doing it in a particular movement, the, the want to repeat that movement to give you that same, um, what actually the same endorphin rush, you get the same comfort from uh, from doing it uh, in the real world makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Yeah. The thing is, though, when you're in your lucid dream, no matter how great or how solid or how consistent it is or how easy it is, it's still yours. No one else knows anything about it. And even if you write it down, the dream and hand it to someone or tell them about it afterwards, You immediately start losing detail and it becomes a step removed straight away because it's afterwards and you've lost parts of the detail straight away. So there's some researchers uh, who are very keen to try and poke into this and go, well, okay, can we skip that step of missing out? Can we get into the people's brains while they're dreaming? Mm -hmm. Um, So they wire them up to encephalograms. It basically is the strings that attach to your head that measure the activity inside your brain. Um, And I did this once, I did did a sleep test, and you go to sleep, and it's a bit weird. You're not in your own bed, you're not in your own house, you've got wires hanging off your head, so it feels a bit NQR. Um, But basically what that means is the researchers can track whether you're asleep or not, and at what point of sleep you're in. Are you dreaming? Are you in REM sleep? Are you in deep sleep? So they can monitor all this stuff. what they did with these particular researchers, did with this particular bunch of volunteers, so they trained them first. So they got a bunch of people that had some, in many cases, very, very consistent lucid dreaming skills, and they trained them to respond from inside the dream. And oh. then they would send stimulus from outside the dream. So sometimes it was a, a voice. They would literally say to the person, um, are you dreaming? What do you see? Or are you comfortable? They'd give them questions. Other times they'd flick the lights on and off a few times so you get that sort of uh, visual stimulus. Mm. And the other one is just tapping tapping them on the back of the hand or on the fingers, a bit of tapping. So there's a a stimulus going in from the the real world into the dreamer's world. But the people in the dream world had been trained to give them signals back using eye movement. So literally moving their eyes left, right, left, right, left, right. Mm. Um, I think four times left, right in a row was basically, I'm I'm getting you, I'm hearing your message. And then they could give numbers. So at one point they were giving maths problems. So they'd say to someone, what's eight minus six? And they get four little left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right eye movements, (laughs) Um, so the person's actually doing calculations in their head while they're in a dream state. Um, there's fantastic feedback from like, anecdotes from, um, from these volunteers. One person saying they were at a party and they're just hanging out in their dream with people at a party. And they could hear the voice of the researcher coming in like they were narrating the movie oh <laughs> coming in from, through the wall uh, and could respond.
2: Wow! God, that's and cool And
7: some bloke who was, um, who was fighting off goblins during his dream And was actually really impressed that he was able to do so many things at once
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's what's impressive about that yeah, uh, it's I it's goblins. Goblins. Strikes me that a sleep journal is a good place to hide nuclear codes Because nobody wants to read that shit <laughs> <laughs> that's,
7: that's a tremendous idea yeah, if you really want to be a secret, just label it a sleep diary <laughs> <laughs> cool. uh,
2: Chris KP, thank you
7: Absolutely, my pleasure as always
2: Triple 40 Banners, a complete run-through. is a new book exploring one of the AFL's longest-standing and most iconic traditions. And to tell us about it, we're joined by a co-author and a former banner writer for the GWS Giants, Matt Hages. Welcome to Breakfasters. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. What have we overlooked in in banners? Do we not treat them with the seriousness that we should?
6: Uh, not necessarily, I, I think we used to treat them with a lot, of, uh, a lot of respect and it used to be a big spectacle And, and these days it's, uh, it's kind of folded in a little bit and it's kind of just swept under and forgotten when people go to the footy So uh, I think it's just something we'd love people to be more conscious of
2: mm. And so how long or what was your involvement in doing banners yourself?
6: Yeah well I actually so myself and Lee both worked at the Giants Uh, and Lee's recently finished up and I wrote the banners um for about five or six years and I'm hoping to have that job again next year um should they return.
2: Yep and uh how much is it just you did the did the cheer squad have a say do they ever object what's the politics that goes into putting a, a banner together?
4: yeah
6: every every club's different so at the giants um where the cheer squad's amazing and we work closely with them but usually these days the the text or the copy for the banner comes from the club itself uh very different to back in the you know the the good old days when the cheer squad had complete autonomous control and that's obviously when we saw some of the the trouble and the political statements and the uh You know the team abuse that used to happen back in the 80s the 70s and 80s and these days it's a little bit more vanilla
1: yeah just looking back on some of those banners i i I couldn't believe some of the statements that were out there obviously the afl didn't have to approve any of these but they sledged the afl and and a lot of the opposition quite harshly didn't they
6: they did it was uh banners back then used as a way of i don't know uh, you know airing grievances or or fighting powers and, and kind of making these big bold statements uh, against authority and against, you know, merging of teams or relocation, and and uh, yeah, these days I think it's it's more just a you know a, a nice easy rhyming cheer for the for the team, which we don't you know we don't love. We want to see the big you know bold statements return, and um, yeah, unfortunately, I think overregulation, like a lot of things, has um, has impacted banners today.
0: I uh, once went to the footy with a mate uh, from the UK, and they they could not stop laughing when they saw. At the footy team run out and run through this banner. Like, they'd never seen anything like it um, to the extent that we do it in the AFL. What's the history with why we why we have these banners? Like, where did this come from?
6: Yeah, it's a good question. We actually It actually started from violence, believe it or not. Um, back in the day, uh, players used to just literally walk through the crowd to get to the, you know, the oval and used to jump over the fence. There was very little fanfare. And then there used to be a little bit of violence and there's some animosity between, you know, the fans and the players and the umpires as well. So what ended up happening was a, a race, so it's called the Players' Race, was implemented. Uh, and from there, fans decorated, the you know, the wire mesh with, with um, crepe and different signage. And, and then just over time, it just moved closer and closer to the field. So it all started from basically players and umpires getting beaten up, uh, which, yeah, a cha- chain of events led to where we are today.
2: I'll let you cherry-pick some stories or highlights from the book that you think ought to be shared. Mm-hmm.
6: For sure, yeah. I think probably the, the one for me is the emotional banners. Uh, often, when players pass away or there's you know some sort of tragedy, um, those are the sort of banners I think that cut through because um, there's not many ways you know to to capture um, that the sadness of a moment. And I think a banner in a, in a very bold statement uh, is a way to anchor. I don't know, the the, the grievances of the fans and and it gives them a chance to mourn. So the one that stands out for me is when Jack Dyer, um, Sir Captain Blood, famous Richmond superstar, passed away. Uh, Their cheer squad basically hustled the night before. There was about 80 of them that quickly got together to turn around a banner for the next day, which which never happens. And uh, yeah, that banner went up and um, uh, I hope I don't misquote it and do it justice, but it was along the lines of Kevin's football team can now take the field. Your captain has arrived. Mm. Um, so for me, that's really special, and it gives that, you know fans a chance to say farewell to their heroes.
2: How important is rhyming, or is it not important?
6: I actually think the banners that don't rhyme are the cleverest. Um, I think it's actually easy easy to you know make a, a couple of words rhyme. I think the challenge or the the genius in it is trying to do something that's different or that hasn't been done before. And I think Colin would actually do it the the best today. They uh, recently, a couple of years ago, purposely misspelt. Uh, an entire banner. So every word on the banner was misspelt, <laughs> um, and, and so it's those sort of uh, you know those sort of clever ideas. I think that we um, yeah we need more of.
1: Not all the players uh, enjoy running through the banner. In fact, a lot of them oh, not a lot of them but a, a group of them are quite su- superstitious about avoiding it altogether. Can you tell us about a couple of those players?
6: Yeah yeah players are weird. Uh, uh, obviously spending a lot of time at <laughs> footy pub. Um, they can be a w- weird in many ways, and the banner's one of them. They, um, yeah, a couple of players um, you know, will do things like they want to run through last or uh, they'll avoid touching it completely. Uh, Matthew Richardson's a good example. Again, another Richmond uh, superstar. He, he wouldn't uh, touch any of the crepes. So what the cheer squad did for his 150th, I think it was, was created a door in the middle of the banner. So just a complete cut out of a door, so he could run straight through without needing to touch it. Um, another weird one was Ricky Petted, um, former Melbourne player. He he used to break off a bit of the crepe paper and rub it on his chest for good for good luck going through. And my favourite probably is uh, a good mate of ours, Heath Shaw, um, former Collingwood and Giants. He um, he had a caricature of his face uh, for his three hundredth milestone. And he, um, he he loved it so much that he uh, he demanded the cheer squad put it up in the change room. So it was it was up in the Giants' change room for about a year and a half after that.
2: I'm surprised it's not hanging from his bedroom wall. <laughs> no, it. That's right. Yeah. What about the uh, aerodynamics? Do they have holes in them when the cheer squad move them around? Is that so the crowd can see, or is that wind related? Can you give us some of the backstory about the actual <laughs> the fragility <structure>? of the <laughs> banner?
6: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's a fine art. They've got it seriously down after after 70, you know, 70 odd years of manufacturing these banners. It's it's become a, you know, a, a tradition um, to basically build them in, in the same way and there's many different ways to do it. So these days banners are, there's some curtains. So they're not even made out of crepe a lot of them um, but the ones that are, um, the trick is basically to ensure there's uh, a weak spot and that's where I think a lot of community banner makers fall down. You've probably seen all the the footage of Young kids running through and then getting stuck in the tape or or bouncing off and hitting their heads. And Where the secret is, is basically you need a weak spot in the middle so that when someone breaks through that initial breakthrough, then the rest of it is meant to crumble. But if you you don't have that weak spot in the middle, uh, that's when trouble happens.
0: What happened then at the 2018 Grand Final when um, the Magpies banner ripped to shreds before they could run through it?
6: Yeah, it's, it's one of those anomalies that happens probably once in a thousand games, and unfortunately, um, obviously on the biggest stage. But um, yeah, it was it was just a matter of probably um, overextending the size of the banner. So the bigger the banner gets, the more susceptible it is to wind and conditions and things like that. And unfortunately, it just detached at the wrong spot, the wrong time, and... Um, and, yeah, it was, I, I, that's another one of my favourite stories. Um, obviously, a, a terrible thing to happen, and the cheer squad was devastated, and, obviously, the game didn't go too too well for them either. Um, but Buckley, the, the coach, obviously, um, at the time of Collingwood, um, how he reacted to that moment, I think, says a lot about the man and about footy in general. Um, I think me and Lee are both footy romantics, we say. and um, To see him kind of cross over and console the cheer squad, You know, in the biggest moment of his career, I think was incredible.
2: You say you're hoping to be asked back. Do any banners bomb or when you get the gig, how do you maintain the gig? And are there any controversies?
6: Yeah, it's a good point. I actually, now that I'm not working at the club anymore, I have a lot more freedom. I don't feel as guilty about pushing the the dial with banners. When I was at the club, obviously there's that nervousness of, geez, what if... Well, what if I've misspelled something, or what if, if there's nervousness of offend, really offending someone? Um, and we saw with Danny McGinley, so Danny's obviously the, the banner man, he's kind of the, the face of banners, brought them back to the Bulldogs uh, in the 2000, uh, fourteens, 15, 16s. He, he was one that fell on his own sword, um, and he was tapped on the shoulder for being probably too controversial, and um, and he kind of said, OK, well, if I, if I don't get to say what I want, and I think it's time to part ways. So it was an amicable party, I'm, I'm told, but who knows?
0: Are you like an armchair banner critic? Do every weekend when you watch the footy, <laughs> is that like your favourite moment? You're sitting there going, and, and what do you kind of give a tick to and a, and a cross to?
6: Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I I get tagged in so much these days. After, especially writing the book, anything banner related, probably ten people have texted me or (laughs) (laughs) tweeted me. So I don't miss. I don't miss much. But um, no, I do. I I do, and I think it's again, it's the ones that are a little bit obscure or different uh, that that kind of get my attention. And um, yeah, I I just actually probably the most enjoyable thing for me is jumping on Twitter and seeing what other people are saying about the banner. That's what I always used to do with my stuff because that's the real test of, of how, you know, much you've cut through is if other people are kind of impressed or are talking about it. I think that you've done your job. If you can kind of, if you can win Twitter, you, you've won the war of the <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs> Any predictions or hopes for what you'd like to see this weekend?
6: Well, oh, I think you have to go for Melbourne, don't you? I, 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 you I was thinking to, more I'd... of the
2: banners. <laughs> oh, yeah, right.
6: Well, I think honestly, getting a banner there is just an absolute feat in itself. Um, I heard there was, uh, just through a banner back channel, there, <laughs> it's, it's, it's being, uh, the banner's being created, um, obviously not, not in Victoria, but it's being, it's being done by a supporter group outside of that. It's being shipped to the ground. Um, obvi- obviously the traditional banner holders of the Bulldogs and, and the Demons can't be there. So it's a, it's another crew that's going to be there to try and hold it up. So there's so many things that can go wrong. So to be honest, if it's one metre tall and, and there's nothing written on it, if there's a banner that gets there, I think with everything that's happened this season, I think the, the, you know, the cheer squads should be pretty proud.
2: Cool. Well, the book is chock full of photos. It's called Footy Banners, A Complete Run-Through. It's co-authored by Lee Mayrick and Matthew Hages, and it's out through Simon & Schuster. Matt, good on you, and thanks very much.